0: Alright, well this morning I've entitled the message, Loving the Lost. And as last week, we, I, I told you we are going to go for a few few Sundays um, talking about love. And last Sunday we talked about God's love for us. And we spent a lot of time talking about His great love for us, His great sacrifice. And just the awesomeness of God's love for us. Did anybody, uh, did, did that help anybody? Or did you guys have your eyes open a little bit how great God's love is for us? Because it just blows me away every time the vastness. Of his love. Now, today we're going to be talking about loving the lost. How many know that God loves everybody, even those that aren't saved, even those that have not yet been given the right to be called children of God? He loves them all. I remember hearing a story once, uh, and I don't know where it came from, but it was basically uh, when they talk about when the uh, Israelites were freed from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. And you guys all know the story. They made it across, and the waters came in, and it, it killed all the Egyptians, and they were saved. And there's a story that there was rejoicing on the other side. They had been set free. They were saved. They had made it. And there's even, you know, the story goes that even the angels in heaven were rejoicing over God's people. But One of the angels looked up and said, I don't get it. I don't see God anywhere rejoicing with us. And one of the other angels said, well, that's because he just lost thousands of the people that he loved. He was, he was away weeping. Even though it was necessary, he still loved those that were hurt in that. And the truth is, that's true for everybody in the world today. You know, and as Christians, particularly in this time, I just found some interesting statistics. I was listening to another pastor preach, and he said there was a, uh, an organization, a secular organization that does studies on the most persecuted people in, in the world today. And what, what do you guys think is the most persecuted uh, people type in the world today? Yeah, it's Christians. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't, know, I didn't realize that. But the number one persecuted uh, people group in the, in the world are Christians. And the reality is is that even though when we think about back in Rome, like, you know, in the times of the Romans, it was illegal to be a Christian. Like, man, it was rough back then. They were being killed and persecuted. And the truth is, Christians are persecuted worse today than they were back in those days. There have been over 70 million people killed, Christians killed for their faith since since Jesus' time. 35 million of those have been in the last 100 years. So it's really easy as Christians right now, especially for the people that are persecuting us, to go, man, they're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get it. They're going to, I mean, it's so easy to try to to turn our backs on those people because there's some ugly stuff going on right now. I mean, you see the stuff that's going on, the stuff that just happened in, in Paris right now, with ISIS doing their thing? We have Christians being beheaded on a regular basis overseas right now. It's, it's a rough time for Christians. I mean, and here in the United States, there's two things. One, it's just not reported on, so we don't know. We hear all the other stuff going on, but no one reports on that. And the other thing is, is in, in the United States, we're not really persecuted. We're sometimes made uncomfortable, and that's about it. So we don't hear about it. But there's a lot of ugly people doing ugly things out there. But I want you to know that even in that case, God still loves them. And if God still loves them, then we should still love them. You know, you watch the news, you see all these bad things, and we wonder how can anyone love people that act like that, that treat women and children that way? I was reading a news story not too long ago about a landlord that took a, his property back from his tenants and when he went inside he found a toy box and when he opened it there was the remains of a young child, a skeleton of a young child in there. And apparently the parents had locked their child in there they, and they starved it to death. And you're like, how can God love somebody like that? And I want you to know that he still does. How many shootings in schools have we had? I mean, how I don't know if it's a, it's a, if it's actually happening all that more often, or if it's just a media thing, so we get to hear about it all the time. But it seems like, I mean, the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. It's getting bad. It's rough. It's, things aren't going good, and society today is continuing to push God away. I mean, we're trying to take God out of schools and the government, and pretty much everywhere they can take God out of, they're pushing to do that. So we can think, well, why should we even care about, if they don't want God, if they want us out of here so bad, why should we even care about them? Matter of fact, you can actually kind of twist scripture a little bit to, 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 to justify not ministering to those people, right? Because what it say? In uh, Matthew 7, 6, don't give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Oh, see, the, the Bible says we need to ignore those people. I well, know what it says there is, we, is it may not be prudent or appropriate to actively minister to them, but you know what? You can pray for them. You can still show them kindness. You can still show them love. Your heart should still ache for those people because God, God's heart aches for those people. And there are even those that have hurt us. There are some people that have been hurt so badly by people that they love And you're like, man, I can understand why you feel that way about somebody. But the truth is, just like in our lives, the things that we did didn't compromise God's love for us, and the things that others do doesn't compromise His love for them. Now, don't get me wrong, there are consequences to your actions. If you murder somebody, you can be forgiven and you can get saved you still might spend the rest of your life in prison. That's the consequence of your action. It doesn't change God's love for you. Amen? The truth is, And I know we talked about God's love a lot last week, and we're going to talk about it even more because it's so pertinent to how our love is expressed towards others is by looking at once again how God's love is expressed towards us. And in Genesis 3, 22 through 24, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work from the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. I want you to know, from the beginning, God has constantly been doing stuff to express his love for us. You are like, Pastor Wayne, this doesn't look very loving. He just kicked him out of the garden. But the truth is, even in that action, God was expressing his love for us. This was actually a great act of kindness, kicking man out of the Garden of Eden. And if we look at it, I mean, we know a couple of things. First, in God's love for us, he, he cursed Satan at that time. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and sh- he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And obviously, that's a, 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 a prophet, prophetic speaking of Jesus. I mean, that the devil was, was taken care of in Jesus. The devil was cursed in Jesus. He was dealt with. And then, like I said, he, he sent man from the garden. And when you look at that, at first glance, that doesn't make any sense. You're like, how can that be an act of love? How can that be a blessing, Pastor Wayne? But the truth is, is, is it says right here that lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The implication is that if we were left in the garden and were able to eat from that tree, we'd be stuck this way. We'd be, we, man would be, would be stuck, broken. Jesus wouldn't have been able to sacrifice himself for us. It would have been a permanent thing. But instead, God made it so that couldn't happen. The consequence may not have been; uh, it seemed like it was great, but that was an act of love to keep us from being stuck in this way. And I thank God, if you read a little bit further, we start in the beginning and find we're kicked out, but if you jump to the end of the book, in two 2.7 it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That is restored to us in Jesus. That position that Adam had, the benefits, the rights that Adam had was restored back to us in Jesus. When you were saved, it's not just a wiping clean of your sin, but you were made brand new. You were recreated. You're a new creation. And then I think about even the the whole idea that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the garden was an act of love. This is one I struggled with a lot, especially when I was first starting out, and I, I read through it, I'm like, this would have been a whole lot easier if God would have just not put that tree in the garden in the first place. Anybody ever thought that? I'm just being real. That's, that's the kind of stuff I think about. I'm like, man, if there was no tree, Adam couldn't ascend, we'd all still be in the garden. But the truth is, if there was no tree, if there was no choice, if there was no option, we wouldn't have a relationship with God. We would just be uh, robots, in essence. Without choice, there is no real love. You know, your spouse, if she was with you because she had to be, not because she loved you, but because she had no choice, what kind of relationship would that be? I mean, it would be no different than, than purchasing a robot with a personality. And God didn't want that. He wanted relationship with us. He wanted choice. He wanted us being with him to be something that we wanted. And he made that way for us. So even what seems like, isn't it like that always? You're like, God, you messed up on this one. Let me show you how you should have done it. But the reality is, and even in ways that we think are crazy, God was still expressing his love for us so that we could have that relationship with him. And we talked about this last week, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then in 1 John 2.2 2, it says He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We talked a lot about last week how these, especially John 16. 3.16, it's just become this trite verse that we just throw around and, and don't really recognize the true power of what's being said. We don't recognize how great of a gift that is. We don't recognize how much love is being expressed in that because it's just something we all say. But even more importantly, when you look at this, these verses, is that His love is all-inclusive. All-inclusive. His love is for everybody. The best of mankind To the worst of mankind, God died for us all. His Son went to the cross so that no matter what sin you've committed, it could be paid for, it could be redeemed, and you could be restored in Him. And like we read last week, John 15, 13, right? No greater love has no one than this, that someone should die for a friend, lay down his life for a friend. And this love was expressed for us well before you were redeemed. This love was expressed well before you were made whole. This love was expressed for you while we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinners. God said, you know what? I'm giving everything for them because he loved us that much. John was actually preaching to believers at this point, but he still took the time to point out that that, the the sin of the world was taken care of. Jesus died for everybody. He took the time to point that out. And if he's speaking to believers and he's talking about the whole world, this means that there are, there are people who have their sin paid for, but they're not going to accept that help. Isn't that amazing that everybody that's out there... Did you know nobody's going to hell because of sins? Because of the sins they've committed? Not a single person is going to hell because of the sins that they've committed. The sins are paid for. The scripture says when Jesus comes back, it's without reference to sin. They're going to hell because they haven't received the free gift of life. Sin has been taken care of. It's been dealt with. So people are making the choice to go to hell, not because of the things they're doing. And even if nobody would have received that gift, God would have still sent his son to make payment for it. His love for us is so great and so overwhelming that as far as God was concerned, he had no other option but to save as many who would rec- as receive it. And his love is so great for us that he is still waiting and waiting patiently to give everybody the opportunity. 2 Peter three nine says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting patiently for everybody to have the opportunity. I remember I was at a conference once, and uh, there was a youth conference, and all these youth were given the altar call, and almost the whole place got up and got saved. And I heard somebody say, man, I wish God would just come back right now. So that all these kids would make it. And I remember my first reaction was, no. What about all the people that haven't heard yet? What about all the people that haven't? Because when Jesus comes back, that's it. And there's so many. And that's why God's not. That's why it seems like he's slow to return. But he's giving everyone an opportunity. And the truth is, that becomes our responsibility. The Great Commission is our responsibility to, to share with the whole world. If you want Jesus to come back earlier, get to preaching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pastor Pastor he's a uh, pastor from one of the the churches in in, uh, New York. I think they're uh, in Kingsman, New York. And uh, his daughter was growing up and becoming of age and, and she was dating a guy and, and he knew they were going to get married at some point. So every time he came down to preach at the Tucson church, he's like, I need you guys to get busy. I need Jesus, Jesus to come back before i got to hand my daughter away. <laughs> so if you got a reason for Jesus to come back, start preaching. <laughs> in Ephesians 2, 4-7 it says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Once again, Christ was sent for the loss. Christ was sent to the loss. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus wasn't waiting around so that you could be good enough. It's the crazy thing when I hear people say, yeah, I, I, just, I need to get right with God first before I come to church. Hey, I gotta need to come to church so you can get right with God. So you can hear what Christ did for you. And we know that God loves us because he sent his son, the most incredible sacrifice that you can ever imagine. He sent his son. And when we accept the free gift of salvation, we become made alive in him because of the grace of God in him. And we are raised up with him. We're elevated well above the place we occupied before we were saved. And we're seated in heavenly places. And our rights that were stripped away when Adam ate from the tree has been returned to us. And all of these things are the result of his love for us. And all of these things weren't just for Christians because nobody was a Christian when Christ gave his life. This was for us while we were dead in our trespasses, while we were enemies of God. So when we look out at the world and we see all these broken and wicked and evil people we can still know that God loves them regardless of what they're doing. And the truth is is that the only thing that's going to change what they're doing is as if they have Jesus Christ in their heart. The reality is is that we do what we are. They are sinning, they're doing those things because they're still sinners. But when you get saved, you are something else. And how you behave should be an outpouring of who you are. That's why when people get saved, when they get well and truly saved, they change how they live their life. Because out of who they've now been made, out of that new creation that they are, they begin to live that life out. That's why James said that, hey, there should be a little bit of evidence going on. Because if you were truly changed the way that you should have been changed, we would see it. And like I said, God doesn't require them to get their act together before he loves them. So why do we do the same thing? Why do we treat people that way? I mean, we do it all the time, even, even in our family. When, when people are, are misbehaving or are acting poorly to us, our first instinct is to react the same way. You probably see it in your kids all the time. You know, one of them is mean to the other, and instead of returning love, they see how they can one-up the other one. Well, I can be meaner than that. Let me show you. That shouldn't be our reaction. Our reaction should always be love. So I, I want to make it clear this morning that that even those people who have done terrible things, God loves them. The question I love to ask people is, how many of you guys think that... that uh, hitler could have gone to heaven absolutely if he would have given his life to christ he he would have gone to heaven even at the last moment on his deathbed if he cried out to god he would have been forgiven for all those atrocities that he had committed and that's just the reality because god still loved him even in all that So how do I know that that's how God feels towards people, besides the multitude of scriptures that I've already shown you? This is the greatest example of it right here. In John 5.19, it says, So Jesus said to, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is perfect theology. If you want to know what the will of God is, look at Jesus. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So we can be sure, we can be certain that if Jesus did it, it was the will of the Father. Because he only did what he saw his Father doing. I find it somewhat humorous when people say, God works in mysterious ways. No, he doesn't. It's pretty obvious. I mean, the New Testament is full of God working in plainly obvious ways. His will was revealed in His Son. It's not a mystery anymore. And Jesus said He only does what He sees the Father doing. So if He did it, it's what God is doing. So we can take a look at the Scripture and see what Jesus did on earth and know that that was the Father's will. So what are some of the things that are the Father's will? He healed all that came to Him. Jesus never turned anybody away. When people said, Jesus, can you, can you help me? Can you heal me? He didn't say, you know, give it a couple of weeks. Work on this, this, and this, and come back. We'll see how you're doing. And then, then maybe we'll think about it. He never laid down any rules for them. People that came to him, Jesus received in open arms. The only requirement was for them to come to him. And he never turned the lepers away. You know, you're like, all right, that makes sense. When, when the normal people come up and they're asking for help, I, I get that. But what about the worst of the worst? The lepers came to Jesus. He, Jesus was a Jewish man. And it was unlawful for him to touch a leper. Matter of fact, in those times, lepers walked around. If they were in the city, they had to walk around with a bell and ring, unclean, unclean. So people knew they were coming, so that nobody touched them, so they wouldn't become unclean as well. That was a rough life, and the lepers came up to Jesus, and Jesus didn't send them away. Matter of fact, Jesus it says Jesus touched them and he healed them. The worst of the worst people that had no hope, nowhere to turn to, Jesus received them with open arms, no matter how bad they looked. And you, this is a, one of the craziest stories in the Bible. You remember when they brought the, 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 the guy on the pallet to Jesus and they tore open the roof of the house? They tore open the roof of some dude's house to bring a guy in to be healed. I have to admit, if that was... We had the church in my house and, and we had some stuff, you know, holes in the walls, stuff like that. But that's a, I think I would have been mad if you ripped off the roof of my house. So I'm going to be honest. <laughs> And if Jesus was there, I would expect Jesus to be like, hey, don't do that, that's not right. But you know what, that didn't happen there. He didn't rebuke the people for tearing apart that guy's house. I believe the person that, that offered his house up for Jesus to work, and I bet that man was blessed. But he didn't rebuke them, he didn't kick them out. Instead, he said, your sins are forgiven. And that really ticked everybody off. So he's like, all right, to prove that I can forgive sins... Pick up your pallet and walk. That still trips me out today that, that today we have no problem with believing that sins can be forgiven, but you know, believing for, for somebody to have cancer cured or a limb grown back or, or even a headache go away just blows our mind. Whereas it was totally opposite back then. They were seeing people, lame people get up with blind saying like, "Ah, this is everyday stuff, but you're forgiving sins. Woo, that's not right. Totally opposite today. It seems it's strange to me. And then we see that, that Jesus just loved people. Do you guys remember when he, Lazarus was risen from the dead? That's such an interesting story to me because Lazarus is sick, getting ready to die. So they go run and find Jesus. And Jesus is like, ah, he'll be fine. I'll be there in a bit. So Jesus comes back, like, waits like four days before he goes down to check on Lazarus. Which I believe is because he wanted to make sure that there was no doubt that he was dead by the time he got there. You see, Jesus wasn't surprised by what was about to happen. Jesus knew what his plan was. He knew he was going to come down there and demonstrate the power of God on Lazarus. He was going to raise from the dead. And I mean, he was dead a while. The King James Version says he stinketh. He was dead for a while. But he rose from the dead. But right before that, Jesus gets there. Right before he calls Lazarus out, it says that Jesus wept. Can you believe that? He wasn't weeping over Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was coming. He wasn't like, this is terrible. Eureka, I got an idea. Maybe I'll raise him from the dead. This was the plan all along. But because his friends, his family, the people that he knew were hurting, he hurt with them. Just their pain caused him to weep. You know, God, that love is demonstrated towards all of us. And there are so many examples of, of how Jesus demonstrated his love for people. And, matter of fact, the, the Gospel of John says that we couldn't even put them all in here because the book would take up too many pages, too many volumes. You wouldn't be able to, to, to store it in a camel, it would be too much. But I do want to take a look at some specific examples today. So we're going to go look at a few uh, more examples. In Mark two fourteen through 17, it says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose to f- and, f- and followed him. So now we're going to take Jesus expressing his love towards Levi. So Levi, who we know as a tax collector. So here's, here's the deal. He's a Jewish tax official in the service of, of Herod, who was the ruler of Galilee at the time. And we don't, it doesn't say specifically whether Levi was an honest man or he wasn't, but the truth is, At that time, most tax collectors weren't honest. These were were Jewish people who were outcasts. They're taking these jobs because it paid well. They were taking advantage of their brethren. And they're pocketing a little bit. I mean, you think people hate the IRS now. That was nothing of how they felt about tax collectors back then because it was their own people taking advantage of them. And even if he were an honest man, it didn't matter because the stigma of that position had already you know, went through all the land in all people's minds. Even if he was the one honest tax collector, people still thought about him poorly. And Jesus said, follow me. So the truth is, this guy who's honest, taking advantage of God's people, is probably dishonest, not a great guy. But Jesus goes to him and says, follow me. I mean, we think that's crazy. But if you think about it, At one point, Jesus came to you and said, follow me. And how much worse off was that, if we're honest with ourselves? I take a look at my life, and I look back at the stuff that I was doing. You may not know this, but I wasn't always a pastor. But God still said, follow me, even with all the stuff that I did. And this is definitely not what the Jews would have expected of their Messiah, I mean, they expected the Messiah to come back and free them from, from uh, the, the Roman rule, the, to free them from, from earthly kingdoms. But they got it wrong. He came to, to give them a heavenly kingdom. But they definitely wouldn't expect him to come back and start inviting sinners to dine with him, sinners to follow him. And then later we find out that his name was changed to Matthew. You guys know what Matthew means? Gift of God. So Levi went from a sinful tax collector to being referred to as a gift of God. And then this man essentially burnt his bridges. He he turned away from what would have been a lucrative job, a well-paying job for him. And because he called him, he changed everything. He gave that life up and began to follow Jesus. I want you to know that's true of anybody out there who's doing some bad stuff. And the, you know we run the gamut of the bad things that we do, but it's true of them. If they get called by Jesus and they begin to follow, then they're changing. They're turning a new leaf. They will be a new person. And then he went to to have dinner. This is crazy because Levi basically, at this point, throws a party, right? And says, hey, come on, Jesus. It says here, after he met with him, he followed him. Then they went and reclining. Many tax collectors and as they reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Basically, actually leave us like, this is amazing. This guy comes into my life, he invites me to... There's something about this guy. And he takes him back to his house, invites all of his sinner friends over to meet Jesus. And now Jesus is in a room full of what we would consider scumbags. And Jesus isn't like, yeah, I can't really go there. I don't want to be seen with those people. No, you know, I, I was sent for something else. I was sent for the good people. I was sent for the people that are already on the up and up. I was sent for the people that already have good jobs and are, are in high esteem of the community. He didn't say anything like that. He went and reclined with them, and he ministered to them just the same as anybody else. Matter of fact, you see Jesus go to these people more often than he goes to good people, because the problem with people that are considered good by this world is they think they got it all figured out. At least these people know there's something wrong, and they're looking for help. Jesus still loved these people. He still went and ministered to them. And I want you to know that before Jesus, we were just as broken as these people in this room. No different. And there are people out there right now who are just as broken, and they need Jesus just as much as you ever did. And it's our responsibility to, to love them like Jesus would. Amen? Amen? When we look at the sinners and the tax collectors of our present age, we should make a point to see them with God's eyes. To see them how God does. I often pray that I would see people as God does, because it's so easy to look the other way when you see somebody that's less than desirable. But I want to see people how God sees them. I want my heart 's to hurt, like God hurts, because I believe that if we had the same heart and the same eyes that God that it would drive us to do something about it instead of turning a blind eye, we would go out there and begin to express love to people. I told you guys recently, and i 've been talking to my coworkers about it too because i 've noticed that i 've been when we walk we have a circle k not too far from where I work, and i work on first and fort lowell and it 's not the greatest of neighborhoods, but when we walk to circle k there 's many times. Um, uh, homeless people or or people just bumming money or whatever they're always asking for money out there and you can look at them and tell that that I've, I've obviously got it better than they do, I, you know, they, you can tell that they're not all that well off many times and I used to be real strict, I didn't give money to nobody at best I might take them in there and buy something to eat, but I had been burned when I was younger um, and I was treating them I just like, I wasn't going to have it again I, I didn't know what that one guy did when I was in high school, so you guys were all like that but then God's been working on my heart and began to say, you know what? The, you know, the scripture says that, that when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me a drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And, and the scripture says that, that whenever we do stuff to others, it's like we're doing it to God. And I began to realize that, you know, the truth is, is that I would rather give money to 100 people that didn't actually need it than to miss the one that did. And I want my heart to hurt for those people. I want to see them like Jesus sees them. Because the truth is, the way I see them is not very honorable in itself. It's not very, I need God's eyes because if it was left up to my own eyes, I would, I would probably not be a very good person. Matter of fact, I know I wouldn't. I, I know who I was before I was saved. You can ask my wife who I was before I got well and truly saved. I'm a different person than I was then. But it's because God has changed me. Another story that I'm reminded of when I look at how Jesus dealt with people is in John 8, 3-11. It says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. How many know it takes two to tango? Somebody's missing. And it says, but now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. It says she was caught in the act. They know who the dude was. How come he wasn't there? So she was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. You ever wonder what Jesus was writing? Somebody has, has theorized, or, or uh, theorized is not the word, but to imagine that maybe he was writing down each of their individual sins. And as they saw him write, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Now, Obviously, there's no evidence for that. Somebody was just postulating. But I wonder what he was writing. But he began to write in the sand. So he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now, go in from now on, sin no more. The truth is that according to the law, she should have been stoned. That, that was pretty cut and dry. That wasn't, uh, uh, you know, unless the priest was feeling nice that day. That was the law. And the dude should have been there as well. He, he shouldn't have been let out from underneath him. But we begin to see Jesus show an incredible act of mercy and kindness, not to like I said, to be clear, according to the law, she deserved death. The truth is, for any sin that we commit, the scripture says that the wages of sin is death, and the only person that can free us from that sentence is Jesus. And we see Jesus show that mercy. He instead of condemning her, he shows great. He shows mercy and compassion for this woman. And he also opens the eyes of the accusers, you know, basically saying, hey, yeah, think about it, guys. How much have you messed up? That's something that we should do as we begin to condemn others for their actions. We're like, oh, I can't believe that person did that. Well, think about the dumb stuff that you've done. One of the things that drives me crazy is, is road rage. I don't, I don't get it. Because people will be driving behind somebody, they'll cut them off and obviously that's not good, and then they just fly off the handle. And all I can think about is, haven't you ever accidentally done that to somebody before? Is that the way you wanted to be treated? I remember one time, I was on the way to church, and I cut somebody off. <laughs> and and uh, I, I didn't mean to, I, I didn't see him. I don't know what happened. And they come speeding up beside me, and the guy driving is cussing and yelling at me, and the, his girlfriend's doing the same thing. And when they pulled up beside me, I just looked at and said, I'm sorry. And it was so funny watching her face because I don't think anybody's ever done that to her before. She's used to people fighting back and blaming the other person. I admit it, I messed up. I, I cut them off. There was no two, question, no, no two ways about it. That's what I did. So I said, I'm sorry. And, and she, she looked at me weird and she actually quieted. And she turned around and she told her, her boyfriend or whoever was in the car with her to stop. To stop you know cussing and yelling at me. And I, I, those situations are why when people do it to me, you know, obviously I do it my best so that nothing happens, no accidents happen. But I don't see any point in yelling at him because I've done it too. I'm not immune to doing stupid stuff. And that's basically what he was doing with these guys. What are you doing? You know you've done stupid stuff too. What is, what is your deal? Take, take a look at it. You know, kind of the whole, you know, quit pointing out the, the sliver in somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own. And we have this tendency as people to, to judge ourselves by our best moments and judge others by their worst. You ever notice that? He was basically showing these guys, you know what, you're in just as a bad position as she is. And like I said, the truth is, she deserved death for her sins, just as we all do. But Jesus didn't want her to die just like he doesn't want any of us to die, just like he doesn't want anybody else walking this world to die. He wants them to have life. And not only that, life more abundantly. He doesn't want her dead. His only concern is that she would go and sin no more. One thing you notice is Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't okay with the sin. He wasn't like, nah, don't worry, new covenant's coming. Adultery's okay. It's still not okay. It's still not right. We're still called to live holy. Amen? He wanted her to go and sin no more. He wasn't okay with what she was doing. But he wanted her to give her the opportunity to have a transforming moment. How many of you, I bet you this changed that woman's life. And we can personalize it for the people around here. You know, we can be the Christian that causes people to harden their heart and say, you know what, I don't want to be a hypocritical Christian. Look at all those people that are acting. Or we can be the Christian that softens someone's heart because we show them the same love that Christ expressed towards us. You know, when people stand out in front of strip clubs with signs saying, you're all going to hell, you're going to burn, what is that doing? That's not expressing love. Even if there is some truth to it, even if there's whole truth to it, That's not in love. And that's not good news. We're called to preach the gospel, which means good news. Telling somebody they're going to hell is not good news. You know what's good news? Telling somebody that they could be made brand new and be forgiven and free and restored and redeemed and made pure and made righteous. That's good news. Hmm. You don't want me here? Fine. Let it burn. These, these guys, their names were James and John, sons of thunder. Zebedee is, is their last name. Sons of thunder is what they were called. These were apparently hotheads. They were more honorary than you guys. And, and these people wanted to reject Jesus. And their first instinct you was, know, like, shoot, we got the power of God behind us. Send fire from heaven. I read this one time when Elijah did it. I bet we can do it too. Send fire down. Burn them all. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. And he rebuked them. Even when people reject God, it doesn't change his love for them. It doesn't change the fact that he wants to give them the opportunity to repent and come to know him. It doesn't change the fact that he's going to be slow to return so that, that not, he's not being slow the way we would consider it. He's just giving people the opportunity. And his love doesn't change. This, the, the way Jesus was acting is what is the, the will of the Father. And it's the same attitude that we should have towards others. Even when they're rejecting us or rejecting Jesus. Even when they're actively uh, pursuing Christians in the faith. You know, when I look at what's going on in the Middle East. And, and I look at ISIS and all that stuff's going. Uh, the only way. That that's going to be resolved as if they, if they come to know Jesus. And what's really amazing, what's going on over there, is, is, is there are actually Muslims coming to know Jesus because they're seeing Jesus in their dreams. Jesus is, 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 is having face-to-face encounters with them in their dreams, and they're coming to know Jesus, and, and change is being enacted. And that's why we're doing work in Kurdistan of Iraq, because we want people to know Jesus, because the truth is, Unless their hearts are changed, nothing is going to change over there. And you can kill off as many of them as you want. They're going to keep coming back up until something in their heart changes. It doesn't matter. And our heart should hurt for them too, even in the midst of the terrible things that they're doing. There are Christians over there that are willing to serve God over there, and some of them are willing to minister at risk of death because they believe having the opportunity to minister to someone who would kill them is more important than living their life. That's amazing. That's showing God's love. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, it says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is Paul speaking. He says, you know what? Go ahead and imitate me. You know why I'm a good candidate? Because I'm imitating Christ. If you want, you can skip the middleman. Just imitate Christ. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's good advice. Walk like he did. Live your life how Jesus did. Jesus showed love to people. He didn't approve of their sins, but he did express his love towards them and give them the opportunity to come in. And we should be doing the same. We were just talking in life group the other night. We were talking about, you know, some of the big hot-button topics. And one of the big ones right now is homosexuality. And the question was asked, John was asking, what would you do if, if someone who was obviously homosexual came in here? You know, what? we're going to love them. We're not going to approve of what they're doing. But we're still going to love them. But if they come in and we begin to berate them and, and condemn them and begin to push them away, that's not going to help them at all. That's not showing love. It doesn't do anything but alienate them. Pastor Mike jokes and he says, you know, when people ask me if we accept homosexuals here, he says, yeah, of course, we accept all manner of sinner here. It doesn't matter what you're doing. God still loves you, and we want the opportunity to minister to you. Because I believe that once you really get a hold of God's love and he begins to change you on the inside, those things will change. I know because before I got truly saved, and I I was a cultural Christian, if you will, quasi-saved, I don't know how you want to look at it, I kept trying to fix myself, and I kept failing. I kept trying to do the right thing, but I couldn't. But then Jesus Christ came into, life, into my life and changed me from the inside. And I, I began to, to change not by my, my own uh, actions or setting out these guidelines. It just naturally happened. As I began to read the word and my mind was renewed, who I was began to pour out of me and I began to live my life that way. And I believe that's true of any sinner. It doesn't matter what your sin is. When you're changed on the inside, how you live will change because it's, it's Christ flowing out of you. Amen. In 1 John 4, 7-2, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us and his love is perfected in us we are supposed to let God's love flow from us the reality is the the reason that you can love the reason that you know how to love is because God loved us first 1 John four nineteen. just a few more verses down the road it says we love because he first loved us and as I said last week, we are made in the image of God, which means that we have the characteristics of God, and that's why we can love, because He is love. And that's one of the characteristics that He's given us, is that we can love. And the Scripture says that if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The whole purpose we are put here is to love. To love one another, love the brethren, to love the lost, to let God's love flow through us. Last week we looked at the definition of love, the scriptural definition of love, and I want to dig into it a little bit deeper today. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You know, love is patient. When the world rejects us, it's actually, you know when the world rejects you, it's not actually rejecting you, it's rejecting Christ in you. Jesus said, if the world rejected me, know it's going to reject you. If the world condemned and persecuted me, know it's going to condemn and persecute you. But when the world does that, it doesn't mean that we turn our backs on it. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he came down to this earth. You know, God wasn't surprised what was going to happen when he sent his son. Matter of fact, he used what the enemy meant for very harm was actually what gave us new life. The enemy meant to kill Jesus, and in doing so, we were given new life because he died for us. But when the world rejects us and it rejects Jesus, we don't turn their back on them. But we pray and patiently wait for the opportunity to share this incredible and precious gift that we have. Scripture says that love is kind. You know, we don't mistreat those who are different from us. Those who don't fit the good Christian mold. You know, there's not this, you know, group of people that will make the perfect Christian and everybody else we ignore. It's for everybody. Love is kind. Love's not jealous. We don't look at those who, according to this world, have it all. You know, oh man, they got everything. They're rich. They're famous. I'm not going to go talk to them. They, they got what they deserve. We're not that way. And we're not jealous of what they have. And it says, love, love is not a boast, and it's not arrogant. We don't weigh what we have in the face of the lost. We don't brag about what God's given us, but instead we offer to them what God's given us, because there's definitely more than enough. It says, love does not seek its own, which means we don't act selfishly. In love, we should never be acting selfishly. Matter of fact, love, like it says by definition, does not insist on its own way. It's not, uh, love is an expression of looking out for somebody else and rather yourself. We don't insist on our own way, but rather in love, we look at how we can help somebody else on their way. Selfishness is probably the exact opposite of expressing love. says so it's not irritable or resentful. The Numeric Standard says it's not provoked. Basically what it means is it doesn't take into account wrongdoing. We're not keeping a checklist. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We're not, we don't have a, a checklist. If they mess up so many times, then we can just turn our back on them. And Jesus was pretty clear about that. And he said, how often should I forgive my brother seven times? And Peter said that because he thought he was being clever because the law said just three times. So, so Peter's like, let me show God how much I've learned. Should I forgive him seven times? That's like, that's like a time and a half plus one. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, nah, seven times, 70 times. Which, basically Jesus was like, you almost got it, except for you never stop forgiving. You never stop loving. It says <clears throat> that it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. You know, we rejoice when somebody comes home. We rejoice when somebody receives the truth of the gospel. It goes on to say it bears and endures all things. That means that we walk with those that are lost and endure with them. That means we're going to put up with some junk. There's going to be people, especially as we grow, there'll be people that come in here that have just gotten saved or they've not been saved and we might have to deal with some stuff. I've heard of stories in, in California. Praise Chapel is the uh, larger fellowship of churches that we that we uh, work with, and and I hear of guys. I was so blessed. We started a church in my home, and, and we didn't really have any issues. I had, I got some painting to be done and some small holes in the walls to repair, but I'm, I'm hearing stories of these guys that are inviting people in, and the wallets are turning up missing. Stuff is getting stolen, and. And they're just enduring incredible things. But you know what they did? They didn't say, you know what? We're shutting our doors right now. They just kept it up. They endured. They bore with those things because they figured that it was worth it in order to share the love of Christ with somebody else. I remember when we first started opening our home to people, when we were with the the Tucson Church, we had had a guy, his name was Squeaky G. He's he's a Christian rap artist and... and, uh, an incredible evangelist. He, I watch him and I'm like, how do you do it? He can just go out there and and I can talk to people all day long. And I'm lucky if I can get someone to talk to me. He'll talk to people all day long. And he's got like 25 people saved. People are following him to events and all that. I mean, he's an incredible evangelist. And he, we were doing life group at my house. And, and he brought a bunch of these people that I never met before. And it's funny because I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, yeah, more the merrier, come on in. And one of the guys, uh, he says, you know what, I, at the end we're all praying. And he says, you know what, I'm, I'm just so honored. I'm so amazed that you would let me, whom you don't even know, into your house. And he was like, for all you know, I could be scoping the place out. But that's, you know, we, we endure those kind of things. We put up with those things. We take those risks because we love people. that's where this comes in. It says it hopes and believes all things. We do it because we believe that God can touch their lives. And we have a hope that we want them to have. Sorry this is going long, guys. We'll finish it up here. John 4.35 says, Do not say, they are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's referring to the to the, to the mission field right there. He's referring to when we look out. There are so many people that are ready to receive him. Jesus saw a sea of people who were hurting and needed him in their life. That's what it says here. It says being white to harvest means that they're ready to receive Which is strange to me because it seems like every time I look out there, I see a bunch of people with their hearts hardened. But the truth is, there are people out there ready to receive what he has for them. The fields are ripe unto harvest. You know, I hope this morning that that you would be challenged, you would be encouraged to, to take a look at people differently. To see people as God sees them to have the, the courage and boldness to, to walk up to somebody and express love to them in some way, even somebody that you normally wouldn't either share the gospel with or, or give some food or provide warmth or clothing or anything that you can do to express God's love. Because the truth is, the field is white on the harvest. There's so many people out there that need His love. They need the, the treasure that we have in earthen vessels. And I think that he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. It's because Jesus saw what was out there. And the rest of the disciples there didn't. They didn't see a right field. It's like, you guys got it all wrong. And I say that let's resolve to be a people. Let's pray that we'd have eyes like God. Let's resolve to be a people that would see the harvest field as Jesus did. As people that are Waiting and ready to receive him. Let's endure all things. Let's bear all things. Let's let's get a little uncomfortable and put up with uncomfortableness that we might have even one more person come into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's go and stand our feet.